When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is Wheel Bearings. Uh, it's been kind of a quiet week, so we're up on uh, episode 12. There's really not anything going on, Sam, so I figured it was a good time to podcast. Yeah, absolutely. And and I'm Sam of Buell Salmon. All right, well, let's get into it. Uh, we got, uh, actually, it's been a little while, so we have a few things to, uh, to pick up on, and we can start with uh, what we're driving. And I know that you just handed in the Genesis G80, and so I wanted to actually see if you shared my impressions of that with how impressed I was with that car. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, for the most part, I think it's a, it's a really wonderful car. Um, you know, especially, you know, at the the price point when you compare it to, uh, some of the German and, and Japanese competitors in the segment, um, you know, it, it drives really well. The one I had, uh, had the, was the V6, uh, with the eight speed automatic and, um, you know, there's there's just a, a lot of things to to really like about that car. I mean, it's it's incredibly roomy. It's um, it's good looking. Uh, you know, I, I like the the proportions and the style that they've done on the second generation Genesis. You know, the the car formerly known as the Hyundai Genesis, which is now the J80. Yeah, Alex Nunez was That's like, right. "Hey, keep Hyundai away from that name." <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Ge- the Genesis brand is still part of the Hyundai Motor Group. Uh, along with the Hyundai brand and uh, and Kia, you know, and, you know, all three of those brands, you know, are, are you know, really producing some fantastic cars now and, and trucks and utilities. Yeah. And that's interesting. It kind of ties in with a question we had on Facebook. I, and we also had some other questions, which we'll get to at the end of the show. But um, we had a question on Facebook was what automaker is sort of hitting on all cylinders and, and why? Um while their profits may be a little bit off from where they want it to be, uh, Hyundai and Kia are really their product is fantastic lately. Yeah, I mean, there there's not really a, a product in there in the lineups of any of the three brands now, um, you know, that I think are subpar. I think, you know, the the only issue that Hyundai's having right now uh, and it's you know, it's what has led to their sales kind of stagnating in the last couple of years, even as the market has grown. Uh, and led to the departure of um, Hyundai of America's uh, most recent CEO, Dave Zukowski, in December. Um, it's it's just been the product plan that they've had, the lineup that they've had. While the vehicles are great, um, it's very uh, car heavy. Uh, there's not a lot of you don't have a lot of utilities in their lineup, and you know right now that's where all the action is, especially in the the smaller utilities. Um, you know, so you know Hyundai's got you know the Hyundai brand. They've got the the Santa Fe, Santa Fe Sport, and the uh, the Tucson, 
um, you know, and they, they still, they still, they're one of the last major brands that haven't yet introduced uh, a, a subcompact utility uh, along the lines of the Honda HRV or the new Nissan Rogue Sport. But see, like this is where I have a, a bit of, and we can get back to the G80 shortly. <laughs> like <laughs> they actually do have a pretty solid lineup. I, so I think of them all as one company. So Kia to me is sort of, they're like Plymouth to uh, Hyundai's Dodge, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. You know, but there's, they seem to have the right, size crossovers for this market you know they've got the santa fe which is a bigger three row they've got the santa fe sport which is a little tighter um they've got the tucson which is you know right the again the right size um and then you jump over to kia and you've got the sportage and you've got the um uh the soul which is, sort of fits right in and, and the soul is actually like i i feel like the soul is n- like notched right between the uh the hrv and the crv yeah, um, definitely. I, I guess I think the thing with the soul in particular is I'm not sure that American consumers really see it as much of a crossover, um, you know, or utility. You know, I think it's it's more you know more along the lines of you know um, the um, the departed Nissan Cube or the old uh, Scion XB. Okay. Uh, and, you know, so I think that's the way consumers see it. And so maybe they're not they're, they're not necessarily seeing it for what it is, which is unfortunate because it, it, it's actually a really fun little car to drive. It's a, yeah. it's really well built. I love the Soul. Um, and it, it's it just keeps getting better. You know, they've added a turbo version. There's an EV version like that's that's it's a yeah, I mean, product. the Soul. The, the Soul EV is actually that that's one of the surprises of the uh, the mainstream EV market, you know, of the the sub hundred mile range EVs that are on the market today. That's actually probably one of the best out there. And so we've taken a complete left turn from the Genesis right. G80. <laughs> so what impressed me <laughs> but, about you know, that? Well, was, that's, that's, you know, yeah, the thing is, you know, for Genesis, um, you know, you, you look at the Genesis brand, you know, it's trying to compete with the likes of Lexus and infinity and, and to a lesser degree, um, BMW and, and Mercedes and Audi, um, and right now they only have two vehicles and they're both big sedans. Uh, they don't have any utilities at all in the Genesis brand. And that's something, you know, Gen- you know, since they launched Genesis as a separate brand a year ago, uh, it, it has kind of struggled a bit. And, you know, if you look at the, the other premium brands where they are really, uh, not, you know, knocking out of the park is on sales of utilities that their car sales, you know, have, you know, they're, they're, you know, car sales of other premium brands have done fine, but it's really the utilities that are really um, cranking up the, the volumes and the, the profits right now. And that's what Genesis needs to add to their lineup fairly quickly. Yeah. And I think that that's there's probably acutely aware of that. Um, and they're launching with the product they have. It was an easier leap to go from Genesis, which they had re-engineered, you know, for what, 2015 uh, or was it 14? I forget. I think it was 14. Um, but that car was pretty new. That was more like a branding exercise to just change the nameplates. Um, I'm sure that they're working on stuff in terms of. Oh yeah. A utility no in that no doubt about it. Um, and you know, I guess you could draw the parallel too, while you're trying to spin the story and tap dance, uh, while you have no utility product to say, you know what? Lexus launched a very successful brand on the back of a pretty much a single 
large sedan and a smaller. Yeah, but Camry that was twenty five years ago. Yeah, I, listen, I'm just trying to give but, the I mean, PR talking at, points. If you look, yeah, if you if you look at you know Lexus's lineup today, you know they have more utilities than they have cars, oh, yeah. and you know they have everything from the the NX at the the small end up to um, you know uh, what's the their version of the Sequoia um, the no, the GX the is GX their is the Land, Cruiser. Land Cruiser. Oh no, the GX yeah. is the Forerunner, like the GX four hundred and sixty. Yeah, well, whatever. And, and then they have know, the, they have the so, LX. They have so many SUVs right. in their lineup; it's just it's crazy. So it NX, RX, GX, LX. Um, right. And the LX is the Land Cruiser, I believe. And okay, the Land Cruiser is no cheapy either. Land Cruiser right. is weird little odd man out. You know, but but by far and away, you know, the top selling nameplate in the Lexus lineup today is the um the rx yeah. you know and it has been for many years yeah and so what do you think that hyundai or i'm sorry genesis has in the works or do you think that they're going you know a large three-row crossover or something that's more like a traditional um suv because you know they did make the kia borrego or however you pronounce it not too long ago um yeah my my, my guess is that we'll probably see something um in a mid-size crossover as the first entry um you know and it will, it'll probably be based on the next, it'll probably form the basis for the next generation Santa Fe. Um, you know, and the, cause, and the Santa Fe and Santa Fe sport are, you know, they, they've been around, you know, they're nearing the end of their current life cycle as well. So they're due for a redesign in the next year or so. So my guess is before the end of this year, we'll probably see um, a midsize um, Genesis utility um, that, you know, then pieces of that form the form the basis of the next gen Santa Fe next year. And if the the Tucson is any indication, uh, it's going to be really really competitive. Even even you know as a Hyundai, let alone a, a Genesis. You know what in, what impressed me the most, I think about the the Genesis G80 was just how how fussed over it felt. You know everything. It wasn't like just a collection of stuff sort of dumped into a car-like shape and, you know, slapped on the sales floor. Uh, everything. Yeah, there's a lot of attention to detail. Yeah. Um, and it just it just operates like it was all meant to operate together. You know, was, you know, thinking back to even the, the K900, you're getting the key K900 now, which is the, the original Genesis. Um, it doesn't feel like that. And that was that was a good car for you know, first effort in 2009. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was one of those, I remember seeing the original Genesis on the show stand, the prototype on the show stand in New York. And, uh, you know, just thinking like, wow, that car is you know, really impressive. It's well-styled. It's, you know, clearly they're not messing around. Um, it's spec sheet looks pretty impressive. And when it came out, it, it was impressive, but it wasn't quite there. You know, um, they don't have that problem anymore. <laughs> so right uh yeah and what was the sticker on yours did you did you look at it uh you know what they they didn't give me a monroni oh, with this one when that happens. Uh, yeah so um i'm actually not sure well we, we'll just uh, uh we'll just punt and say it was like i don't know 65 because it's probably somewhere it's, there. yeah it was it was probably around around 60 I mean, you know, the, the G80 starts at 41,000. Which is crazy. Uh, Think about that. Yeah, I know. 41,000. You could push a Camry up that high. It's a hell of and, a Camry. And, you know, the, the one I had was all-wheel drive. Uh, so that that bumps it up to uh, 44,000. And, uh, you know, even even the V8, 
uh, is only 54,000. So I, I doubt this one was over 50 grand. That's crazy. You know, which is, yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's pretty, that's a, that's a bargain. Yeah. It's great. Or actually the way they would prefer we describe it as great value. Well, and that's, yeah, that's what I try to, you, you don't want, so you, don't, you don't want to describe it as cheap. Right. Working in advertising, I'm very attuned to that. Uh, it's, it is a great value, um, uh, because it certainly doesn't feel cheap. You know, it's got, again, that, that attention to detail, you know, it's, it's a leather and Alcantara lined interior, <laughs> you know, it's, it's everything's. And even the, the wood trim, you know, I, I, one of the things that they, that Genesis uses is, uh, you know, they have a matte finish on the wood, which, which I really prefer. I don't, I don't like the like look of really high gloss woods inside a car. Uh, I really prefer the, the, the matte finish and, um, this, you know, this one had the matte finish wood and I, it was, you know, it was really nice. And the, the amount of tech that's in there too is, you know, again, it's just, you know, even the, uh, I noticed even the buttons on the center stack, they feel like they're flocked or they're coated, um, mm-hmm. in, in some way. Cause you can, you can do like, you know, plastic switch gear, right? Like every car has it and you silk screen on the, the legend, you know, the, the, the words or the little, right. Uh, these in the G80, it feels like there's an extra like coding over the top. And I'm sure there is. And it's just like this, you know, everything feels like smooth and silky and tactile, uh, in, in some way. And it's, you know, again, that's, that's something that you notice in cars like, you know, the BMW seven series and, and stuff. And, and and it gets even more ridiculous in cars like that with the, the ceramic control package and stuff. But, um, yeah, uh, I'm, yeah, and as, as, as you were talking, I just priced one out, uh, and came to 53, eight, including delivery. That is a ridiculous amount of car for that money. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, a, a comparably equipped BMW or Mercedes, uh, you know, like say a five series or an E-class is probably going to cost you at least, twenty thousand dollars more so would you say that hyundai is actually probably not making any money on these cars priced as they are um no i think they're they're probably making a fairly healthy margin um just not as much of a margin as um you know some of their competitors would be really you think it's uh you think uh, okay bmw builds a five series hyundai builds a g80 they probably cost about the same to build. Yes. No, sort of. Yeah. They're probably, yeah, they're probably in the same ballpark. So BMW is making that much more of a margin. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Damn. (laughs) Well, I mean, BMW is actually, they were, they were the most profitable automaker for however many years, right. For, uh, uh, between, between them and Porsche. Yeah. Porsche, Porsche, Porsche has always had ridiculous margins. But, you know, that a big part of that is because and, you know, one of one of the places where um, the Germans in particular have really learned how to make a lot of money on their premium brands is through personalization programs. Yeah. So, you know, you have you know, if you go through the configurators on their websites or go through their product catalogs, you know, you can you can build out, you know, a stock um, version of one of any of their vehicles. But then, you know, for example, BMW has the individual program. Um, and so you can go into your BMW dealer and sit down and basically spec out virtually anything in their lineup, pretty much any way you want. Um, you know, you want a special color? 
no problem for the right price they will paint the car any color you want you want a particular type of leather not a problem you know same thing with um with porsche you know that's why you know you can you can easily you know bump up a 911 you know to well you know even even a non-turbo 911 you know to well in excess of two hundred thousand dollars i priced myself Um, out like a pretty base model 911 targa but the the brown paint was a little bit more the uh the leather in the interior was a little bit more it was it was like 120 and i hardly had any options on it right and you know you like i said you can get any of those pieces customized you can get you know you want something to match the uh the drapes in your living room not a problem. They, you know, just take them a swatch and they will mix some paint and paint the car for you any color you want. Yeah. So then there's there's that niche that they've certainly burnished their brands to the point where people want them and they want to, you know, basically use them as a sketch pad for their moneyed creativity. Uh, so then who is who is the G80 for? Like For me, I think the mark for this car is somebody who has maybe and, and Hyundai admits as much. Uh, you know, the is somebody who's done those cars, you know, who's had the Mercedes, who's had the BMW, doesn't really care so much anymore about the status of the brand. But, you know, yeah, they, wants they a don't solid they car. don't need the flash. They want something that, you know, is um, maybe a little more restrained, uh, a little different, you know, uh, but that still has, you know, some some real style to it. And, you know, that was something where the first generation Genesis was maybe lacking a little bit was, you know, in that sophisticated style you know, these, the second generation model, the G80 and, and, and also the G90, you know, are, look a lot more sophisticated and upscale, um, especially with that, that new, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, with that big grill on the front, but also the proportions, you know, you look at it in profile, you know, it's got that longer hood, you know, the coupe like roof line, um, you know, and it, it looks sportier, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have the, the conservative look that the first generation model did. Uh, and so it, it's definitely has that has a, a degree of sophistication that, that wasn't there before. Um, and, you know, that says, you know, I know what I'm driving, you know, and this, you know, this is a car that, that has, um, has all the characteristics of some of the best cars in the world, but, you know, I don't need to, to shout it to the world. Yeah, I I get that, and you know it's all there's there are other buyers besides the people who've actually done that and are confident enough you know have the German cars and are confident enough to you know come back and just be like yeah I just just want a solid car like if you were to if you were to drive this back to back with something like a, a five series and an E class I'm I'm not going to be insane enough to try to compare it with an S class <laughs> that's that's <laughs> slightly different, um, but you know and after you actually get get past the E-Class, you know, it's sort of a, a diminishing returns. You, you enter the land of make-believe where, you know, the options and the features in those cars is just so ridiculous to begin with. You're just like, why would I even want anything more than than the sort of middle of, you know, the, the solid hunks of red meat that's in the middle of those lineups? So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I came away from the G80 very impressed, um, and it sounds like you did as well. And then you you jumped out of that into the another car that actually is is sort of, on everybody's mind because it's it's uh kind of a little icon on its own uh the the honda civic sport hatchback yeah so the the hatchback the, the civic hatchback um launched uh, a few months ago um and one of the uh 
unique trim levels to the hatchback that's not available on the sedan is the uh, the sport uh which gets you um uh, i think about six extra horsepower uh all, first of all all the all the 2017 civic hatchbacks come exclusively with the 1.5 liter turbo uh that debuted last year in the sedan um and the the sport uh gets a few extra horsepower uh a bump up from 17 to 18 inch wheels um and uh front splitter and and some side sills uh you know so it looks a little more aggressive and it's got uh twin outlet uh center mounted exhaust in the rear bumper um so you know it's a you know i i really like the civic hatchback um and in fact um my wife and i are uh, just waiting on one in the right configuration to arrive at our local dealer uh to trade in our um our jetta tdi for that uh but the uh, the sport that I'm driving that I got today uh, it has the uh, the six speed manual. But one of the things about the sport is, uh, you know, in terms of its interior trim, it's basically the base level LX. So you don't get the the nice touch touch display radio with Android Auto and Apple CarPlay support. Uh, no sunroof, um, you know. So it's a little more basic, but um, you know it still drives great and. You know, Honda makes fantastic manual gearboxes, and this thing is just so slick shifting. And in combination with the 1.5 turbo, uh, it's a it's a fabulous powertrain. Even though the turbo is kind of the turbo changes the Honda powertrain thing for me. You know, the for me, a Honda four cylinder has always been very smooth, willing to rev. Uh, you know, and and not necessarily a lot of uh, a lot of power delivery down low on the tack uh, you know not bad but not certainly you know low end torque was not their thing uh and the the turbos that i've driven in the civic kind of flip that around where they don't really want to rev um and i should say i haven't had any with the manual so well you know it, it actually revs pretty quick it just it runs out of steam sooner so yeah. you know instead of instead of revving to 7500 rpm you know it'll rev to 6500 um but it gets there just as quick as, as any other um, Honda four cylinder. And, you know, for around town driving that, that low end torque is, you know, just feels so much better. Yeah, It definitely, you know, the power delivery matches, I think what people prefer. The other thing I didn't like about that turbo engine is it's note is kind of, it's not, it doesn't sing the sweet song that Honda's sing, have sung. Yeah, you know, it's that's a true. Drony that's true. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of splitting hairs. But it's not bad. Yeah. No, I mean, when you can, it's see certainly it. something I can live with and yeah. and will be living with for the next several years. Yeah, and it's certainly a, a solid choice. And after a while, you just kind of get used to it. Um, but I, I was shocked to just kind of notice and be like, "Wow, this this really sounds, you know, just it it doesn't sound to me like the Honda engines I've known and loved." But then again, it's it's a new kind of Honda engine to get to know and love, right? That's I'll be absolutely about that. Um, and, you know, we'll be seeing a lot more of this kind of engine in Hondas in the next few years. You know, I'm sure when the when the next gen Accord arrives and in, within the next year or so, you know, it's probably going to have I would guess probably uh, it'll probably use the one this one five turbo as the base engine and maybe a one point eight as the uh, as a replacement for the V6. We're back to a 1500 cc Accord. <laughs> Yeah. Next thing you know, they're going to come out with the CVCC badge or something. But but of course, you know, <laughs> the, the original first generation Accord, you know, was a smaller car than today's Honda Fit. Yes. Yeah. But and, and, you know, like the big thing for that, it, it's so funny to go back and 
and read like about the accord and how mind blowing it was. Cause you know, it's kind of like it is now, like everything's high quality, everything's presented well for a very good price. Uh, and you know, very meticulously engineered and assembled. And the accord had like a radio with a tape deck as standard equipment. And that was a yeah. big deal. <laughs> it was. Hey, that was 1976. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, it's crazy to see. You know, this, the civic doesn't even have a CD player in it. Yeah, well, who listens to CDs anymore? Only I know. old iconoclasts like me who can talk about the benefits of... Uh, well, you probably still use cassettes. Uh, I don't... Or 8-tracks. Eight, eight well, we're talking like <laughs> half-inch 8-tracks or one mm, a 1-inch 8-track, like an Ampex MM-1000. All right, I'm getting geeky. <laughs> uh, so anyway, I've been driving a couple of things because it's been a little while. Yeah, what do you got? Um, so I last week I had a uh, Lincoln MKC. And, uh, you know... <sighs> it's nice enough you know it's a competent luxury crossover uh and this is in in black label. it's a really nice escape yeah that's why I'm, like i just feel like lincoln needs to do better you know even in black label trim it has to compete with a whole bunch of other crossovers luxury crossovers that are also very good and with better established brand reputations too i mean even cadillac at this point is kind of got more cachet than than Lincoln. And this is honestly, this is one of Lincoln's best products because uh, overall it's it's a solid attempt. You know, the interior is nicely finished. The styling outs, uh, you know, the exterior styling is nice. The problem I had with it was really like, yeah, it's an escape, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> why buy the Lincoln, especially when you look at the price like this, this was nudging 60. And I'm just looking at it. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it was just think, a little breathtaking. Um, yeah. When, when I had an MKC about a year and a half ago, um, it was just over 50, you know, and that lot. seemed like a lot. Yeah. Cause I mean, the stuff that's good about the MKC is mostly the stuff that's good about the escape, right? It's a solid platform. Uh, the handling performance are, are decent. The MKC does have the large, uh, the larger EcoBoost, the 2.3 liter. Mm-hmm. Um, so it does have plenty of power, but on, that's not what you, you don't really need it. Um, the two liter would have been fine. Um, but it's, it's a way for them to differentiate, I suppose. And it's, you know, for its size, it has, it feels like it has, you know, a decently spacious layout. Um, although it's still now, not that big. You know, one, one of the things that struck me about the MKC when I drove it, um, a while back was how quiet and refined it felt. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, driving on the highway, you know, it was almost silent in the cabin, what did you think about that? Did you notice that? Yeah, I did. I noticed I, I in black label trim, the, the cabin is beautifully finished and it's quiet. It is. It's it's very nice inside, nicely finished. Um, I also noticed that, you know, it has it, it has better discipline in sport mode. And I did like that you could in sport mode, you could you could select normal performance and uh, performance, uh, you know, the, the sporty chassis because it, mm-hmm. it didn't really get harsh. Um, it just seemed to have better, better body control. And it's, it's was kind of a subtle thing. So I'm not sure how much of that was like placebo effect where I'm expecting it to have better body control in, in sport mode. And so I thought it did, uh, but it, it just seemed to, um, you know, snub body motions better. And while you put it in normal and normal filters out some of the high frequency stuff a little bit better, it also felt like that was at the expense of, of, uh, you know, head toss a little bit and just, it felt squishier and normal. And so I almost felt like the sport chassis setting should be normal (laughs) for it. You know, I got, once I figured that out and again, like I, I'm sure it has the, um, 
the computer controlled uh dampers um yeah it's and it's still it's it's a subtle difference uh i really didn't like the the transmission all that much um but again, it was okay i guess every transmission now is really reluctant to give me a downshift and i i just don't like that so you know i'll wind up in something older and you know you give it a little squeeze on the pedal and it it gives you the downshift a there's fewer gears so that's one thing uh with you know modern eight speed or you know seven speed automatic has a lot to choose from so does it drop one does it drop two does it just unlock the torque converter there's a there's a bit of dithering going on and then there's also i'm sure there's filtering of the pedal inputs so that if you sneeze or something and you push really hard on the pedal it 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 makes it looks for sort of like oh, do they really mean it are they holding the pedal down are they pushing the pedal further are they being aggressive then it gives you the downshift i don't i don't like that second guessing so and i i would guess that uh we're probably going to see the the mkc and the mkx both um upgraded probably uh for 20 in 2018 models uh, later this year with the new nine speed that uh, ford co-developed with gm yeah and we'll see how that does I, you know honestly i'm kind of picking on a very minute part of it and, and you know backing up the mkc is you know it's it's well styled and it's probably the only successful instance of that sort of bow wave grill which is you know going to go away i want to see what happens to its nose when it gets the new lincoln corporate face um yeah i'll, I'll be interested to see how both the the c and the x um take to that new uh that new face yeah and the, you know overall i feel like the mkc reminds me of the audi q5 and that's that's not a bad place to be and that's that's not a coincidence i mean oh, yeah. you know that's they were directly aiming at the q5 with that car um and, and but the, you know at the end of the day what really sets it apart is uh styling and its larger ecoboost engine so i find it hard to recommend the mkc over just a really nice escape um but the, i feel like they're not necessarily the same thing you know i was i was when the mkc first came out i had actually uh, an actress on one of my shoots and she rolled up in an mkc and it was it was like new at that point uh, and i was like oh how do you like it you know i haven't even I hadn't even driven one um and and she was saying yeah it's it's great the a they gave her a phenomenal deal on it like a lease deal because <laughs> uh, it's lincoln <laughs> right and you know she was actually she was looking for something that wasn't like a glk or a q5 or, you know, whatever, the, the Macan hadn't come out yet at that point, I don't think, or wasn't really on her radar, I forget which, but she was just like, and, and, and around here in the Boston area, Macans are like roaches, they're everywhere. So, uh, you know, premium compact SUVs are a thing out here, and I still, I don't see too many MKCs, so I'm not sure how successful they're being with it, um, but it's just, you know, I don't know what Lincoln is really selling besides matthew mcconaughey uh, <laughs> you know it's almost like lincoln's afraid of its own shadow you know like they they don't have enough they're not swaggering enough with this vehicle and it is a really good premium compact crossover it's it it is a you know it's in a competitive set i get it but it it's also you know it, it has some things to to recommend it sync 3 is pretty good uh not great but pretty good uh you do get used to it um and you know overall there's 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 a uniqueness to the the escape and the lincoln version of the escape that sort of sets it apart from 
some of the other competitors just because it's the Lincoln way versus the BMW way or whatever. So I'm not sure how many they're going to move. Uh, they, if they needed to rebuild their brand on the back of this vehicle, they need to make more noise about it. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and sales of the MKC have dropped off pretty dramatically over the past year. Uh, especially since the MKX launched, uh, the MKX is actually doing a lot better than the MKC. Uh, you know, so it, they're it's it's struggling a bit and hopefully uh you know we'll see what happens when they do a refresh you know if the if the refresh of the mkc comes this year um that might get things uh kicked off a little kickstarted a little more yeah and the mkx is a that's a masterful uh sort of uh rejiggering of pieces you mostly already had you know it's it's styled like an all-new car and it's you know, that's the MKX we've known for quite a while, um, but it, it looks substantially different. It has the 2.7 liter EcoBoost in it. And, you know, that's so, you know, Lincoln has a solid crossover lineup, um, crossovers and SUVs. You know, they, they've really. And they've got more coming. Yeah, I mean, so I'm a little baffled yeah, we... why they're not why they're not pushing it enough. But, you know, then again, each one of those vehicles is a Ford product. You know, right. <laughs> so while you can make more profit on the Lincoln, you can probably move more iron on the Ford. So are we chasing profit versus volume or are they just. Well, I think, you know, one of the things I think that's happening is I think they're they're actually selling more of those now in China than they are here, uh, much as Buick, you know, is more successful in China than they are in North America. Well, let's <coughs> see how long that lasts. So, yeah. <laughs> And I'm just going just gonna to gloss right over that and talk about the other thing I drove, um, which was phenomenal. I do have to say, uh, I had a, a Chrysler Pacifica um, Limited. Uh, I apologize for the next person who gets it because the, inter the interior of this smells like marijuana. And the reason why <laughs> is because we had a shoot at a medical marijuana grow facility and I used the Pacifica. The Pacifica showed up the day before the shoot. And I was like, sweet, I'm going to put all the gear in it. And so it's fantastic. You know, it's stow and go seats and the back seat powers down. And I, I filled it up. You know, I, I, we didn't have a ton of gear, but I had, you know, some Kino flows. I had a cart in there. I had all my camera support and, uh, you know, C-stands and my grip kit and stuff. So we, we put some, some good gear in the back. It was sort of still lightly loaded, but it was nice to have the space. And so we spent about six hours in this marijuana grow facility shooting, you know, all their grow rooms and their packaging operation and everything. And um, very tightly controlled, by the way. So but, you know, you spend enough time in that environment and you just absorb the odor. So all the gear went back in the car and then I drove back to the office and I left the gear in the car um, because I had some things. To let do. it let it permeate the, I, the rest I, of the vehicle. It was mostly like I have to get back for a meeting. And so I ran into the meeting and then I ran back out to get the gear and I just opened the driver's door. And I'm just like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and even now, like I'll get in and be like, yeah, it smells a little funky in here. Yeah. That, that's your story. And you're sticking that's to it, absolutely, right? Hey, it's legal in Massachusetts. It's legal. And they're setting up a dispensary and uh, yeah. So, uh, but beyond that, even if you're not high, the Pacifica is a really good van. I feel like it's the best. Oh, I totally agree there. with you. I had one a couple months ago and it was fantastic. Yeah. I, my my kids love it. They they love minivans, which is the weirdest thing because they're like, Dad, I I want to have a minivan someday, and I'm like, you know, I I have to say as a, a sort of car enthusiast, I get it. Like the the van is just 
it's got great visibility. It's very comfortable. Um, you know, again, this is the limited. So it, this is a $50,000. Right. But, you know, and, you know, I'm sure, you know, how how old are your kids? 11 and 8. Yeah. So, I mean, they're they're the perfect age to also, you know, take advantage of all the all the techie features that are in this thing. You you get you got the you got the games that are built into the the screens and the the back of the front seats. Um, You know, you get remote controls there for those. It's you know, there's so much cool stuff that they've built into it that is makes it perfect for families. Yeah, well, in the past, so the power sliding doors, the kids love that because they can just hit the thing and it'll open on its own and they can hit the button and it'll close. They they love the captain's chairs in the second row. They do love the games. It, it keeps like, they'll get in, they'll sit down. First thing they do is swing open the screens and start playing with the games. Um, you know, it just feels like a car that was designed for families by people who really understand how families are going to use their, their, their vehicles. And, you know, I understand that the, the older caravans were the same way and the town and country was they were the same way but what's different is that everything has been given an upgrade the platform is really solid the materials are really really good you know i stepped out of um that lincoln and there were some areas like the surrounds of the door handles on the lincoln they were black plastic like the the panel that has the the door pull and the power lock switch it looks like it came straight from an escape on the mkc in the pacifica there's a metal bezel around it you know just just subtle touches like that and like the whoever picked the materials and the the interior design for the pacifica did a fantastic job at least in limited trim it's it's beautiful in there and uh it, you know the ergonomics are really good and so it's it's a it's a really solid upgrade that puts it at the front of the pack and that's that's hard to do in a pack that includes, you know, the Odyssey that's probably the best driving minivan, but not necessarily the one you want to live with every day unless you want to punch the screen in the middle of the dashboard. <laughs> um, or this, you know, I'd, I'd been recommending the Sienna for years because that's, for me, it just felt like the best compromise. It's it's not quite as sharp in terms of reflexes as the, the Odyssey, but, you know, it's it's a minivan. Like, do you really want something that sharp that, it's quieter than the odyssey it's a little squishier a little softer um and it's it still has a big v6 that's a rocket so that all of those things and and now they have a plug-in hybrid version as well and all-wheel drive the the um the uh can you still get all-wheel drive i thought that was discontinued uh, it might have been but for a while it was the only ah they're still advertising the all-wheel drive sienna here in new england i don't know Oh, in the Sienna. I yeah. thought you were talking about in the Oh, uh, in the Pacifica. No. In the Pacifica. Yeah, no, you can't you can't get uh, all-wheel drive in the Pacifica yet, but I think they're talking about it. Yeah, well, I wouldn't be surprised if at some point we see um an electric all-wheel drive uh, version of the uh, the hybrid. Well, that's totally the way to do it. You know, it's, yeah, because you know you don't have to deal with running a drive shaft to the rear axle. You can just stick an electric motor in the rear axle um the way you know, for example, Lexus does on the RX hybrid, um, you know, that it's, it's a much, much more, uh, convenient way to do it. Yeah. And it was a, it was, it was a very Chryslery um, week over the last week. So I, I put actually more miles on the Pacifica than I generally put on a press car because I, I went up to the, um, the Challenger GT launch up. Uh, so that was Portland, Maine. And then we drove across Maine. One, one of the rare occasions when you have a, a media drive program for, 
uh, a muscle car in the snow. Well, it's like because the Challenger GT is all wheel drive, and we can talk about that. It was just, uh, you know, I, I Chrysler has uh, they got some really, really detail oriented, hardworking people on their most solid products. Um, you know, I noticed, you know, as I was driving, because I put a bunch of miles on the Challenger too. Is I was like, man, this car is comfortable. It's quiet. Uh, you know, and I got back in the Pacifica and I had to drive it all the way out of Maine into you know, out from Portland back to, you know, central Massachusetts. So that's no joke of a drive either. Uh, I It wasn't fatiguing to drive either of those. So, and, you know, the old caravans would they'd sort of they felt very long and uh, like the back end wasn't quite following the front. <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah. that's been engineered out. Um, and the, the, the Pentastar doesn't struggle quite as much as it felt like with the older vans. Um, you know, some of that's just tuning and the transmission calibration and stuff but yeah uh very very impressive first experience with the new pacifica so um i think i babbled enough about that uh we should cover some stuff <coughs> all right um, so you want to you want to talk about the challenger first or uh, you know uh, what, what i drove I, last week i've been talking for a while why don't you talk and you actually talked to some other folks too um but you went and drove the chevy bolt yeah, so I went out to uh, Northern California, out to the Bay Area to uh, spend some time uh, with the Chevy Bolt, um, which is uh, GM's new uh, 200 plus mile range electric vehicle, mainstream priced electric vehicle. Uh, and, you know, it's the first uh, you know, relatively affordable EV that'll go 200 miles on a charge, you know, uh, coming at at least a year before the Tesla Model 3. And, you know, what was interesting is I got to drive it on some of the same roads, you know, in uh, in and around Silicon Valley, uh, where I originally drove the uh, Tesla Roadster um, almost nine years ago, exactly to the day uh, before I drove the uh, the Bolt. And then um, same place I drove the uh, Model S uh, last spring when I was in that in, in that part of the world. And um you know, compared to the, I mean, certainly, you know, you're not going to compare the the Bolt to uh, the Roadster, but, you know, frankly, uh, driving through some twisty mountain roads um, and then into San Francisco, um, I would arguably say that the, the Bolt is a better car for both of those scenarios. Really? It, yeah, it's it's a really good, solid car. Uh, you know, it's officially rated at 238 mile range. And, you know, based on the driving we did over several hours last Tuesday, uh, you know, that's that's definitely a very believable uh, range number. Um, you know, we drove we drove from Palo Alto up over the uh, the mountains uh, over to uh, Half Moon Bay and then up along the coast uh, into the city of San Francisco and then around San Francisco. And one of the things that uh, the GM's done on the Bolt, uh, which you'll hear a little bit more about in one of the interviews I did with um, uh, Adam Heisel, who is the uh, ca uh, calibration engineer for the propulsion system, uh, was the way they calibrated the regenerative braking. Um, but, they, you know, so they've got two modes uh, for the regenerative braking. You know, the, the shifter, you've got the standard drive mode. Uh, and when they do the, the certification testing for EPA to uh, get the official range number, they only do that in drive mode. Uh, so that's where the, the 238 mile range comes from. But then uh, there's also the low mode, which, you know, a lot of plugins and, and hybrids and EVs have, you know, something like a low mode, like, for example, a Prius, you know, it's actually labeled as B for braking for extra extra regenerative braking. Uh, 
but you know what it does is low mode gives you basically maximum uh, regenerative braking. So you can, when you put it in low, you can basically drive it all the time um, with one pedal. You know, you almost never have to touch the brake pedal. Uh, and it, uh, you know, it does, it uses all regen uh, to slow the car down, uh, except for emergency braking. You know, if you, if you need to, you know, if you need to do an emergency stop, then you're going to slam on the brake pedal and then it'll use the friction brakes. Uh, but you know what they the uh, engineers I talked to said that if you drive around and especially in the city if you drive around in low mode and just get a little you know learn to drive with with using just the accelerator pedal you'll actually get significantly more range than uh, what uh, you know than the official number um, they wouldn't say exactly how much but it's it's definitely notable and just to give you an idea uh what it was you know uh, during one leg of our drive uh drive route we went about 10 and a half miles around downtown san francisco from the golden gate bridge to our lunch stop at a restaurant um in the uh in the southeast part of the city and over the course of that i drove it in in low mode you know up the hills and down the hills uh and it only used up three miles of range off the uh, the, ra- the on the gauge. Well, that's kind of also a perfect uh, to go- place to be is is up in that. Oh area. yeah, there's so many hills where you can just regen for quite a while as you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, between between the hills and you know just the fact that you've got start and stop traffic, uh, it's a it's an ideal uh, location for using an EV. Uh, but you know the the thing about this thing about the the bolt. Uh, and why I say it's arguably better in a lot of ways than the Model S, uh, especially, you know, in the twisty mountain roads, you know, the Model S is a huge car true. I mean, on the outside. It's it's a really big car, um, not so big on the inside. In fact, the passenger volume of the Model S is actually uh, about one cubic foot less than the Bolt. Um, is that for, but wait, they have the jump seats. Um, yes, but those those don't count as passenger volume. That's in the cargo space. Oh. So it's just cadaver volume or? Yes. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the passenger volume in the f- first and second rows uh, in the uh, Model S is 94 cubic feet and the Bolt is 95 cubic feet. Uh, where the, the Model S has an advantage is in, in overall cargo space because they've got that longer rear end and also the, the front trunk or the frunk as they, their fans so like to call it. Put that in perspective though, 95 cubic feet, that's a midsize sedan. Right. That's yeah. Yeah. That's I mean, that's that's typical of, of most midsize. Actually, it's on it's actually on the small side for a midsize sedan. Uh, a lot of midsize sedans, like, for example, Ford Fusion or Hyundai Sonata are actually closer to 98, 99 like, cubic feet, like 99. Um, OK, so that's that's more like a uh, let's see. I'm trying to find an analogy. Um, Prius size, Jetta size. No, Prius is. A yeah, Prius that's it's about Prius size. Yeah, but yeah. Prius has that big hatch. So it's actually deceiving you know the prius is actually quite useful because it has of its well and so is the bolt That's you know true. you've got that you've got a big hatch you know you so you got 95 cubic feet of passenger volume plus another 17 cubic feet behind the rear seats for a cargo space so you know it's a very usable car but it's it's a full foot shorter than the model s uh so it makes it a lot easier to maneuver around in the city uh, and also a lot more fun to drive on twisty roads because it also weighs about a thousand pounds less than than a 60 kilowatt hour Model S, yeah. even though it's got the same battery pack size. Well, I, you know, that's the thing that I was waiting for uh, the Bolt and it just 
you know, you know that the big automakers are getting into it um, and they have the resources and the know-how to, you know, Tesla had to build a car company from scratch and they've done an amazing job. Right. Oh yeah. And you know, if it wasn't for Tesla, the bolt oh, probably yeah. wouldn't exist. Yeah. And a lot of other cars would not exist today. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you got to give Tesla credit. No, and that's uh, right. That's not where I'm, where I'm going. I'm just, you know, now that GM has, has committed they're bringing the the full strength of GM to it where, you know, those folks really know how to engineer a car and, you know, they don't have to learn as they go, you know, like they've, they've got it right. down. They make some solid vehicles, gas powered, electric powered, whatever. So it's, it's kind of, um, it's almost like, you know, that they're going to have really, you know, a solid car and the resources and the wherewithal to put it into development of a solid electric powertrain. Although, you know, Tesla's powertrain is no joke either. So, oh, no, absolutely not. You know, and, you know, Tesla does have an advantage in terms of total performance, or at least in terms of acceleration. You know, their 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 vehicles do produce more power and it'll accelerate quicker. But um, the bolt is no slouch, you know, zero to 60 in six and a half seconds. That's so much. That's uh, so plenty fast enough. I mean, oh, absolutely. Yeah, th this whole like thing with all of the electric cars being super expensive luxury sedans that do zero to 60 in like 2.8 seconds is idiotic. Or, you know, it, you know, making a big deal out of the fact that, you know, one company's car does it in 2.39 seconds and then Tesla comes out and does it in 2.389, you know, a right. thousandth of a second it's faster. Yeah. Anything under five seconds, you're not going to feel the difference. Yeah, it's it's, it's be, ridiculous to even talk right, about it's it. It's going to be really impressive. And so, OK, we've proven that electric motors deliver max torque at zero RPM, right? Like and they're heavy, yeah. so they have no you know, they have fewer traction issues and you can make them all wheel drive. So, yes, a quick zero to 60 run in an electric car is possible <laughs> moving right. on, <laughs> you know, and you know, the, uh, you know, the bolt, uh, you know, it's, it's relatively tall, uh, for its footprint size, uh, which makes it very roomy inside, but because you've got, you know, a big chunk of the weight, you got, you know, almost a thousand pounds of the 3,700 or 3,600 pound weight, you know, in the floor, uh, it corners very flat. You know, it, it it's really a lot of fun to drive. And, you know, I think it's it's probably all around one of the best cars that GM makes today. And, you know, one of the best cars you can buy today. Yeah, I wouldn't argue with that. I mean, you know, I'm sure it feels well screwed together and solid to drive on the road. It rides and handles competently. And you know, were there any rough edges? What you know, looking around and, and certainly it's it's at a different price point, too. So it's sure, you know, you know, I think the the one place where I think some people might complain about it, you know, certainly it's not as uh, sleek looking as a Tesla, you know, and if you compare it to the design of the Model 3, um, you know, it doesn't have that sleek design of a Model 3. But on the other hand, uh, it wasn't designed to be, you know, uh, like a, a sports sedan. You know, it was designed to uh, it was aimed right at the heart of the market today, which is crossovers. You know, so it's designed, you know, it, it's being marketed as a small, as a compact crossover uh, rather than as a car. And that's, that's, that's what customers want. Um, you know, and the, the one probably, you know, the one kind of flaw in the ointment, uh, if you can, if you want to call it that is, you know, a lot of the interior surfaces 
um, are hard plastics. They're not soft touch plastics, um, you know, for a couple of reasons. One, you know, trying to keep the cost to a minimum, uh, but also, uh, you know, adding the the, pan, the padding for the soft touch surfaces adds weight. You know, so they're trying to keep weight down as well. And they did a pretty admirable job of, of keeping the weight down in this thing. Like I said, it's about thirty six hundred pounds, uh, you know, with a thousand, almost a thousand pounds of that being the battery. So, uh, you know, it's, it's very weight efficient, uh, for, for what it does. Um, but even though it's hard plastics, you know, they've, they've done a really good job, I think of executing those plastics. So, you know, they've got some nice texturing on the surfaces. They've got nice combinations of, of colors, uh, inside. So, you know, when it, it doesn't, it doesn't look like a luxury car, but it also doesn't look cheap, but do you, you think know, it's the, not, the, I'm sorry. Um, do you think that the fact that it's not, it's not a premium car, right? It's, it's sort of like, it's the normalization of the, uh, long range EV, right? Um, do you think that that hurts it, that it's not a luxury car? No, I don't think so at all. Um, uh, because, you know, and you know, one, one of the things that, you know, Tesla's got, you know, almost 400,000 pre-orders for the model three, uh, which is going to be in the, in the same price range as this thing. But I think, you know, one of the things that we haven't really seen is what the final interior of the Model 3 is going to look like. And it's a, probably a safe bet that it's not going to look or feel like a luxury car either, um, because they're, they're going to have to they're going to have to make some choices in order to try to get the cost down in order to be profitable um, and, and compete and be able to survive as a company. Yeah, and I so, think it's going to be a lot harder for Tesla than it is for. Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, they don't have um, they don't have conventional powertrain, you know, internal combustion vehicles um, that are profitable to offset the costs of selling EVs. You know, they're not a full line automaker the way GM or, you know, most other incumbent automakers are. And so, you know, GM can offset some of the extra cost of the batteries um, compared to uh, compared to what Tesla can do or Faraday or uh, Lucid or, or, you know, any other company that builds nothing but EVs. So, you know, I think uh, it, it's going to be very interesting to watch, you know, GM is so far they've they've launched the car in um, in California and in Oregon. Uh, and uh, over the next five or six months, uh, they'll spread it out to all 50 states. So by by the end of the summer, you'll be able to buy buy a bolt anywhere in the United States. Um, and, you know, one of the advantages of that is that. GM, you know, has dealers in all 50 states, unlike Tesla. And they have sales, uh, you're right, sales, they, like franchise. They have sales, sales and service, you know, so, you know, when, you know, if you need service, you know, if you, you know, uh, for whatever reason, you know, just regular maintenance, you know, uh, you can take it into any Chevy dealer and, and get it serviced, uh, which is something you can't say about Tesla. And frankly, you know, Tesla uh, so far with the Model S and the Model X has not developed a, per, a particularly good reputation for quality and reliability. You know, they've had a lot of issues and it's going to be a lot tougher for them to improve on that when they're building, you know, 10 times as many cars. Um, well, yeah. And, and the early if, adopters, if they don't have early adopters are much less tolerant. I mean, much more tolerant. Yeah, they're they're much more tolerant and people who buy high end cars also, you know, are much more tolerant of flaws in their cars because they usually have other cars that can drive. And even now, um, you know, with limited volumes of the Model S and the Model X, 
Um, you know, there are reports of people waiting, you know, several weeks, you know, to get warranty work done on their cars. So that's going to be that's going to be a real problem that they're going to have to deal with, you know, with the Model 3 when they start rank, crack, cranking up the volumes. Um, and that's something that GM already knows how to deal with. So, you know, for other manufacturers, um, you know, they're they're going to have a, a distinct advantage over Tesla, I think. Yeah. Well, and like you said, too, you can you can buy one now you yeah you you know and by the time you can get them in 50 states are you going to even be able to get a tesla model 3 i uh no right so uh that gives them in sort of an advantage uh, almost like early mover advantage um in the affordable ev market the key is going to be whether they can successfully motivate people to buy them and, and you know this is the challenge i guess with any any model um but especially because you know, they don't have the cachet of uh, Tesla, you know, regardless of how good the engineering is and how how much it's actually a benefit that it's Chevrolet and they're part of GM. And that brings with it actually a lot of, of positives for developing this kind of car. You know, how, yeah. how are they going to sort of push back against something that's just, you know, it's, it's a premium brand. It's sort of like, you know, when you're talking about Beats headphones versus something that actually sounds good, you know, <laughs> like there's there's, there's going to be a lot of, uh, you know, pushback on on sort of fact versus emotion and you know that that's i'm not sure how gm's gonna and, there, and there's plenty there's plenty of emotion around the tesla brand yeah uh which you know is is good for them yeah, and some of it's warranted uh, you know i mean they certainly yeah, did a thing absolutely it uh has pushed everybody else you know it's kind of like the nsx right the the original nsx is why ferraris and lamborghinis got so accessible and good yeah well at least good good yeah, i don't know I about mean, accessible sure uh, <laughs> I mean, they're a lot more expensive today than they were 25 years ago when the NSX came well, out. Yeah, all right. I'll give. It, I mean, I'm I'm thinking like the Giardo, right? The Giardo wasn't that expensive. Um, it's yeah. Okay. Uh, dude, look, if you're buying that kind of car, yes, it's not. Just just work with me here. Anyway, keep the analogy going. Uh, you talked to somebody actually. You, you had you give me um, some interviews that we can cut into the show. Uh, yeah. So why don't um, why don't we we'll we'll include uh, uh, interview with Stuart Norris in uh, this week's show because uh, we're already running kind of long, uh, and then we'll save the other two with uh, Steve Majoros and and Adam Heisel uh, for next week and tack those on to next week's show. How do we want to team? Uh, so we're gonna talk about you know. Talk about the boat with Stuart Norris. How do we want to tee it up? Yeah. So uh, I had a chance to talk with uh, Stuart Norris, who is the managing director of the GM Korea Design Studio. Uh, and the, the GM's uh, Korea Studio uh, took the lead on doing the design work on the Bolt. Uh, they're, they've, they've been responsible for most of GM's uh, small cars in recent years. And they did the bolt uh, and I had a really good conversation with Stuart uh, about what, you know, what were some of the, the design design decisions that went into uh, this, you know, why, why did the car come out the way it did? Um, and so let's listen to that. And then uh, for next week, we'll have um, uh, Chevy's uh, marketing manager for uh, small cars and SUVs, uh, Steve Majoros and, uh, and also uh uh, propulsion calibration engineer Adam Heisel. Okay, Stuart. Yes. 
Uh, see. Talking with Stuart Norris, who is the design director at GM Korea Studio. Yeah, right? managing director of design. Yep. Okay. And uh, so you've been over there for about four and a half years now, you said, and you've worked on the Bolt right from the very beginning of the project. Yep. Um, what? <laughs> Lucky we came into the quiet interview lounge. All right. So. <laughs> um, one of the things that's uh, interesting about the Bolt, first of all, is the, the package, you know, especially the obvious comparison everybody makes is versus Model 3, which, you know, Tesla's gone a very different direction with the packaging of that vehicle, which obviously has gotten a lot of attention. You, know, you guys have done uh, more upright vehicle. What, what drove, what was the, the reasoning behind the packaging of the Bolt? Um, so... Clean slate, you know, clean slate start to, to develop in the package. Um, so, so we work very closely between, you know, engineering team, the battery team, and the design team to kind of understand, you know, with a certain amount of sort of energy density into the battery, how big was that going to be? Yeah, the, pro the, prog the project started off with a very clear brief from Ackerson at the time, who basically said, you know, um, 200 mile range, 30,000 bucks, fourth quarter of 2016. That's, that's your goal. So from there, we just kind of worked on trying to define what we thought that vehicle needed to be to fulfill that briefing and just kind of expand upon that. And then, so working basically with the battery team, the integration team, and, our, and you know, the design studio, we basically looked at this, you got this battery as flat as we could, drove the wheelbase out to kind of, um, the, the 2600 dimension it is, we push the wheels out into the corners. Um, and then we set about basically trying to set up an interior package for the vehicle. Um, and we wanted it to have kind of, I won't go as far as to say SUV, but certainly a CUV like seating position. Um, so it's got a raised seating position, the, the chair height, so the height from the from your butt to the heel is, is somewhat elevated. Um, obviously we didn't want to make it too, too high. Uh, we don't want to suddenly turn it into a, you know, a really, really tall car. It's, it's pretty tall as it is. Mm. Um, we set that interior package volume up. We kind of set the occupant relative to the rear wheel. Got, you know, we were really driving for this C segment interior and a B segment footprint. You know, kind of a real, you know, a real uh, packaging efficiency um, sort of model. Um, and then we'd always, we always liked the idea of the exterior of the car. Um, to be um, like a progressive CUV. So we didn't want to do a traditional sort of windshield to hood and upright windshield and upright A-pillar. We wanted it to be very fast, get the windshield far forward. Um, and I think, I don't know whether you spent time in the car, but I think one of the things we really took on board was this idea that instead of just styling a car, we wanted a kind of design and experience. And when you sit in the car, you've got that forward windshield, A-pillar forward, IP down, um, the belt is really low, so you feel super spacious inside the car. Um, we put a bunch of efficiency into the floor console and the instrument panel so your knee can spread and you feel, you feel like you're sitting in a much, much bigger car than you really are. Um, and the view out and the vision out is really a unique experience when you, you know, look at that windshield touchdown position. So as, as a result of all that, we kind of pulled together this vision of what we wanted the car to be. Um, and we wanted it to be something different. I mean, I don't think we wanted it to be um, a traditional proportion and a traditional view of what the car should be. Um, uh, and so I think that's, that's kind of how we kind of ended up with the package and the design that we have. 
What what sort of use cases did you envision for this car? Mm-hmm. Um, so <clears throat> we we kind of went after it with this kind of uh, I would say almost a utopian vision of like a next gen family car, and based on you know not not a family car like a like a Tahoe, but a, you know, a relatively efficient and compact um, uh, family car. Um, and we felt that once we'd done that, really, uh, yeah. Once once we'd kind of optimized it for that sort of lifestyle, um, then we wanted to build in flexibility and versatility into it. So yeah, the fold down rear seat—it's got the false floor in the rear with the with the fold down rear seat. So you know, interestingly, we live we you know staying in this house. The guy that owns this house owns a Bolt EV. He bought he bought one after he started working with us. Um, and he sticks his, he puts his, he goes surfing in it. He puts his, he can put a full surfboard right the way through the car. Right, yeah, we saw the one in the garage that's yeah. got that roof rack with the yeah. surfboard on there. Yeah. So when he, so he was telling us that when he goes to just to like Half Moon Bay, he sticks it on the roof. But when he wants to, if he's going into San Francisco and he needs to drive around, he wants to keep the board secure, he puts it inside the car, which is... Uh, Slide the front passenger seat forward and... Yeah, I actually can, I think he, I think he was sticking it between the stars. Oh, okay. Um, so we, we kind of looked at it but this kind of very, you know, open, flexible interior space. We wanted that, you know, that ability to be able to take, you know, two adults and, and you know, fairly grown up kids in the back of it. Um, and then again, building in that kind of then that, that versatility and flexibility with the seating and the and the trunk cargo space and so on. And yeah, I think you know one of the other things I love about the car is that you see so many electric vehicles that are kind of architecturally co- compromised because of you know they didn't have a dedicated architecture when they electrified the vehicle, and so you kind of chew horns of batteries into the car. But because we were able to design a ground-up architecture for the vehicle unique to this car, there is no compromise in terms of the interior package. The trunk volume is huge um, because we, you know, we were able to to architect the vehicle for what we needed it to do. Um, I think also you'll look at um, when you get in and out of the car. Uh, we've got completely flat rockers as well. There's no, there's no rocker. You don't have to step into the car. You right. just slide over straight over it. Um, which, yeah, we always really push for, you know, easy ingress, egress. Um, that raised seating position also helps that as well. So it's a very comfortable and rational product, um, but it's kind of executed in a very expressive and dynamic way. I mean, obviously, in the in the years since this project started. Um, Ride hailing, you know, Uber started about seven yeah. years ago. Yeah. Really, in the last four or five years, that's become something that's a really big part of the way people get around in cities yeah. globally. You know, not just here in the U.S., but everywhere. And how much did how much did that play into some of your design decisions as far as the the overall architecture of the car? Yeah, I mean, so I think again, that was you, you kind of asked about the the scenarios for the vehicle. Um, you know, we'd always, from the very beginning of the vehicle, we kind of envisaged this as some kind of a taxi as well. We'd love, we'd love, love the idea of being able to um, do, you know, a, a volume vehicle that met a, a you know, retail customer expectation, but also something that we could flex into into a into either a shared or or a taxi in kind of uh, environment. So, you know, ingress egress, the the door openings are really good. There's no, you know, you're not having to bend down and get yourself un, in under the under the roof rail or anything so we've got very good headroom very good diagonal headroom um, the glass is pretty upright so you get tons of shoulder room it's very easy to get three people across 
Um, in terms of materials and so on, obviously the seats are available in a you know, fairly um, uh, retail customer friendly um, e execution, right? So we've got fabric and we've got leather. Um, but the basic materials of the interior of the car, we try to create something that feels premium, but also something that's very robust and, and is going to stand up to, um, you know, the rigors of maybe a shared environment. So all the all the doors and so on, it's all you know, it's a hard plastic, but they're they're executed, I think, in a in an expressive way that kind of balances that need between a retail customer and something in a shared environment. Uh and one of the one of the, the uh, obvious questions. I'm not sure if this you know would fall to you or maybe to somebody from the engineering team. The decision to go front wheel drive versus rear wheel drive. You know, again, calling up the the obvious comparison. What was there was there a particular rationale? I mean, since you have a uh, a dedicated platform for this vehicle that. Uh, I'm sure it shares some components with other GM vehicles, but you know, overall it's a dedicated platform. What was the rationale for going one direction versus the other? I mean, did it, did it make that much difference in terms well, drive, of packaging? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, drive unit packaging, um, I think once you start putting drive units into a rear-wheel drive environment, then, you know, the you know, rear suspension packaging, I mean, you know, it's... The overall package is a very efficient package. Um, you know, we've got a torsion beam rear suspension, um, which you know is is a, an appropriate level of content for this vehicle. Um, I think if you end up going into a rear-wheel drive environment, you suddenly have to drive yourself into um, multi-link rear suspension, which frankly, you know, is is something beyond what this vehicle segment really needs. And I think it all goes back to this whole idea of like. You've got a $30,000 price tag you want to get to the vehicle. You, do you really want to drive a whole bunch of very expensive componentry into a multi-link rear suspension that this customer is not going to, you know, then, then you're suddenly into a trade-off. So I think the whole idea of us adopting a more traditional front-wheel drive layout, you know, helps us leverage what we've done for Volt and other things. You know, this is a, a continuous development of a EV strategy for, for GM and for Chevrolet. Um, where we really build off the experience that we've taken from the Spark EV, the Volt One, the Volt Two, and now into into the uh, Bolt EV. Um, it's a it's a logical extension of the strategy we've employed on those other vehicles. Okay. Um, and the um, the 200 mile range that was something that was that was one of the original targets, right? Yeah. Um, what uh, at what point in the the, the process? I mean, uh, GM's talked a lot about their partnership with LG yeah. on this, this uh, vehicle, and LG is supplying a lot of the systems in here. Um, at what point did they come into this project um, and and start to get heavily involved with with uh, the GM team on this? Uh, since the very beginning of the project, so we, I, I think that maybe is part of the reason why, uh, yeah, it's certainly one of the reasons why the vehicle development was done in Korea, so that we could um, leverage the location of the LG Chem team. Um, but yeah, they, they, we've been engaged with LG since the beginning of the program. Okay. Um. It's a real partnership. I mean, you know, we, I won't go into all the detail of how we get there, but, you know, 
basically a shared vision of being able to see a battery chemistry that can get you to that range, right? That's all part of the, the magic of how you put the car together is that, you know, on the one hand you can you can get the chemistry for the for the cell to deliver it and then then we, we need to do the work to develop the vehicle that's gonna execute to that. And um, you know this is obviously a, it's a global vehicle designed to be suitable for markets, not just not just in North America but everywhere in right. Asia and Europe. Yep. Um, how, uh, were, were there any things, uh, you know, in terms of the design and the architecture, were there any things about that, that aspect of it being global that um, drove some of your decisions in the, in the architecture and the design part? Um, I think increasingly, um, uh, you know, when, when people have shared, when there's so much shared information about where the market is and where trends are, um, I think... I mean, until, unless you get into very, very specific entries like an emerging market segment or, you know, full-size truck for North America and the Middle East or something like that, um, I think mostly when you're in a fairly mainstream segment of the, of the market, um, requirements are fairly um, consistent between the big developed markets. Um, and so I think a, a good package in a well-designed car um, is pretty palatable to a global consumer um, and I don't think we've ever kind of ever entered into doing something where we say oh that you know that styling needs to be more appropriate for a Korean customer or a European customer or a North American customer um, we do a lot of you know we do market research and in, in and globally do that market research and that feedback is typically fairly consistent between the markets so um, would you say that um, design like the what um, what audiences in in different parts of the world um, see as appealing in a car is somewhat would you say it's converged yeah. over the last 15 20 years yeah and I think it, it goes along with many other th you, you, I think you see that in, in out, outside of the automotive industry as well where you know people want you know they want the same phone that the US market has, right? And they want, you know, increasingly as you see social media and the internet and, and everybody being connected to seeing similar things, everybody kind of, uh, you know, that, that tends to drive tastes to become, uh, it, it, not in a negative way, but it's more homogenized. Mm -hmm. and, um, and and therefore customer expectations are quite similar within within um, regions. You know, we get into things, but like color, color is always very um, sensitive to, to markets, and especially it can become quite cultural as well, where certain colors mean something in a given market versus something else. But I think, you know, in, from a broad design execution point of view, um, you know, if you look at it throughout our portfolio, right? I mean, the Malibu is a global entry, has been for a couple of generations, um, and, you know, customers like the idea that they recognize this global vehicle that you can buy in the U.S. and you can buy in Asia and you can buy in Europe. So I think I think there's a want that's driven outside of the auto industry as well. Um, would, you know, ha having spent several years in Korea now and, you know, being here before that, would you say that, um, or how, how would you say that, uh, working with studios in different parts of the world has influenced GM design overall? Uh, oh, as an organization? Yeah. Um, I think 
the cultures are, are incredibly different. Um, there is a there is a tendency that um, it's that I think the greatest value can come out from having um, people um, work in those environments. Um, I think you know with the best one in the world, we connect at a leadership level um, between the studios. Uh, but for the for individual designers to really get full benefit out of understanding our global footprint, yes, yeah, there's, there's a role on us as a leadership team to bring that culture, um, but also getting designers to experience work outside of their individual studio. Um, I would say that, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we have a, I mean, uh, take Korea as an example. It's, it's a fairly singular culture in Korea. I mean, 99.9% of my designers and team are Korean. Uh, but we've got a lot of them. There's a lot of Korean designers in, in uh, the US, you know, because very, very highly talented, very highly skilled, very well educated. Um, and they're a mobile team. Um, and they bring a, a lot, a very high tech approach. They're very, very tech savvy, know how to use all of the software tools that we have in the, in, in the studio very, very effectively. Um, and they bring a fresh perspective from a design point of view. You know, our designers see, you know, Hyundai, Kia, um, Renault, Samsung, and, and Sanyong in, in Korea. You know, there's a, you know, that, that brings a different perspective in terms of the product design um, sensitivity. Also, proximity to China has a big impact. Um, every time I go to China, I'm just completely blown away by the just the sheer mass of entries and vehicles that are there. And it really keeps us on our toes, right? We're sitting there designing the car and you go there and you're like, Jesus, this is the context of where this car needs to operate. We need to kind of, you know, change tack to get this vehicle to, to really be able to work in that environment. Because you look at Europe and North America and, and, and you know, Korea and Japan and other, you know, very well-established developed markets, they're pretty stable, you know, and the entries are fairly stable and the brands are fairly stable. But you go to China and it's just like... It's changing so fast. Oh you got players it's unbelievable, unbelievable. So I think, you know, Korea being able to get be quite close proximity to that and getting connected to that is is very helpful. Um, and then there's, a, you know, the North American, the U.S. kind of car culture is, is, is quite different. And then, you know, how we're moving into these new spaces like autonomous, which is you know, very, very strong, I think, particularly in, in the US, the, the whole proximity to the technology side of things here and, and the tech companies that are you know, getting engaged in that kind of stuff. Um, I think it brings a really, really interesting global perspective to all of us. Is, is there a lot, is there much opportunity for designers from, and also engineers from different parts of the world? I mean, I know a lot of the, the managers move around yeah. and work among different uh, regions, but is there much opportunity for the main, main level designers yeah. to move around as well? Yeah, we do. We, we sent um, probably four or five designers to work in the US for short term business trips, like six, six month business trip okay. or something. Um, so yeah, we, we there, there's pretty decent opportunity. And we, yeah, we work on global programs. Um, so their exposure to um, European requirements, North American requirements, it's very very clear. And you know, when we're working on major global programs, we get people coming to design center to to visit us, and so they get context there. Um, and then, you know, if we're working on something for one of the other brands. 
quite often we'll have designers come work with us to um, you know help us shepherd us through the kind of brand DNA of what we do um, and vice versa. So yeah, yeah, there's a, there's quite a lot of uh, movement of designers under the management level. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Nora. Yeah. Really yeah. appreciate it. Yeah, good talking to you. All right. Well, it's so I mean, the, you know, GM Korea that that's Daewoo. Right. So that that investment has That's paid off. Former Daewoo. Yeah. yeah, they've got, you know, a lot of the former Daewoo staff there. And in fact, uh, the lead designer uh, on this program, uh, whose uh, name escapes me at the pro- at the moment right now. Um, but uh, she uh, she actually came out of uh, Daewoo. And uh, let's see. To the Googles. Find it. Yes. <laughs> well, actually, my my email. Oh, uh, to the Gmail, which is the Googles. <laughs> uh, let's see. Sang Yan Cho, uh, who is the uh, director of GM Design. She works uh, works with Stuart uh, at GM Korea Design, and she was the exterior design manager for the Bolt. Uh, and uh, she and and her team uh, developed both the interior and the exterior of this car. And uh, I think they did a a fantastic job, you know, given some of the constraints that they had. Um, You know, you know, I think I think it's a really good looking vehicle uh, for the type of vehicle it is. Um, And, you know, it's very easy to get in and out of uh, very comfortable inside roomy. You know, I mean, when you look at when you see it and you see this, you know, that it's a relatively small vehicle. I mean, it's not tiny. It's you know, it's bigger than you know quite a bit bigger than say a honda fit in fact it's actually a little bigger than a sonic than a chevy sonic um but it's very roomy inside easily uh supports um you know four adults uh in fact um seth myersma uh from motor one uh he was on the same uh, wave of the the drive program as myself and as everybody and knows he's like seven feet nine inches tall yeah well no he's, <laughs> he's like six foot six i think um and you know seth got in the back seat of the bolt you know he set the front seat for um for his his uh for so he could be comfortable and then he climbed in behind there and still had room to spare so you know, this this is not, you know, it looks small on the outside, but, you know, it's got plenty of room on the inside for uh, for adults and it's comfortable. You know, we um, we drove it for about three and a half hours and, uh, you know, the, the seats, you know, provided plenty of support um, and was not I was not fatigued at all on this thing. Well, that's a that's a highly complimentary uh, outlook for the old. I mean. See if it. Uh, yeah, you know, I think you know, I think anybody that's that's interested in you know in a smaller crossover, um, and um, you know is also interested in in going zero emissions should really give this thing a, a look. Uh, you know, as soon as your local dealer's got one in stock, go go take one for a test drive. And you know, um, Steve Majoros, the uh, marketing manager, said that you know they're they're trying to do some creative things with the marketing on this. You know, they're they're making they're uh, doing things like twenty four hour loans uh, for test drives, so you know you don't have to just you know go out and drive it around the block a couple times. You can actually take it and use it for your normal driving use um and see what it's like to live with well i mean that's 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 smart dealer practice so good for them um yeah all right good well we'll we'll come back to the bolt next week uh so in the meantime um do we want to talk challenger gt absolutely all right so they so first of all props to chrysler for they they put on a super 
nice program for this. And and while it, this is going to sound like I was the uh, typical auto journalist and you got wined and dined and treated like royalty. Um, so what they did was they uh, they had us all start at the Press Hotel in Portland, Maine, which is a really nice place. Uh, and Portland's a cool city. Uh, and then they we had about, I want to say, eight or ten challengers that we then set off uh, from after they gave their presentation. Uh, we set off across Maine and into uh, like central New Hampshire, just north of the, the lake. So uh, there's a new place up there called Club Motorsports um, in Ossipee, New Hampshire. And... Uh, they have a it's a track it's you know a new facility you have to be a member um but their their track is like 250 feet of uh elevation change and they have a go-kart track and so so it was a it was a cool place and they they had us we had the challenger gts out on the go-kart track uh sliding them around um and i actually have a a little piece of i'll post it maybe as a bonus so this this podcast doesn't get too long but me and uh camille kaluski of uh universe uh we were uh trying to see how quickly we could lap <laughs> one of the um one of the uh the challenger gts and i was his uh i was his right seat uh driver for a little while i was trying to um you know sort of pass on some of the things i'd learned in high school about sliding a big car around in a tight space on the snow uh but anyway so the challenger gt i feel like this is this is chrysler going uh or dodge really just going like um yeah about that giorgio platform that we don't have yet um <laughs> we don't have it and we they took our trucks away they uh took our minivan away everything we have is old and they just killed our sedan our our c segment sedan um so we're left with not a whole lot um how do we even be creative and try to come up with something new because you know the 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 key in the auto business right is if you don't have something new you're you're done like you have nothing to uh announce um so first of all, what they did, so you go to the parts bin, right? And and what they did was they they looked at okay, so the Challenger's biggest cross shop is not the Camaro or the Mustang, uh, really, it's the Charger. And okay, likewise, the Charger's biggest cross shop, and this is all this is all according to Chrysler. So, you know. This is what they say. <laughs> I paid attention. Well, you know, I, actually, you know, I think that makes a lot of yeah. sense because, you know, in that segment, you know, of these, you know, uh, performance coupes, uh, th I think there's a lot of loyalty, you know, and I don't think that there is a lot of crossover among the customers, you know, so, you know, people that are into Camaros are not going to buy a Challenger or a Mustang. They're going to buy a Camaro. Yeah. Similarly, you know, Mustang drivers, you know, are not even going to consider a Camaro or a Challenger. Yeah, so it makes it makes sense that Challenger drivers, if they're going to look for any alternative, it's going to be for basically the same thing with four doors. And that's that's what it is. So they they cross shop each other more highly than anything else. So that the, the Chargers biggest cross shop is the Challenger. One of the um, biggest reasons for people not buying the Challenger and opting for the Charger or something else is that there's no all wheel drive offered so they said well shoot we can do all-wheel drive it's going to be less than a couple hundred pounds in the v6 the v6 is the the one that sells the most anyway um yeah that's not really hard for us to do <laughs> so they um they added the all-wheel drive system from the charger to the challenger and they you know they did some slick things with it uh where you know because sensor fusion is a thing um so it can 
engage all-wheel drive like on its own it can engage the front axle when the temperature drops below a certain point so taking off from stops is more confident uh you know when it detects wheel spin it can engage the front axle um it, but it does or even in like an aggressive lane change it'll it'll go into all-wheel drive otherwise it defaults to rear-wheel drive so it has good driving dynamics nobody's ever gonna complain that the lx platform doesn't have inherently decent you know behavior it's it's a nice well-engineered driving experience in my opinion i don't know maybe maybe you do differ but uh no i, I agree with you uh you know it's definitely it's it's not the newest but it's it's a solid car even now you know and i like that they've, they've had they've had a few years to refine its behavior yeah there we go that's that's very <laughs> diplomatic um no i mean it, it, it's the challenger is different than the charger in that you know it's a it's got a little less wheelbase so it's actually a little bit more rigid um and its visibility sucks a little bit more <laughs> uh but it it's still you know it, it is this niche car and they're actually calling it the first you know uh, they've they've it's a very qualified statement let me see if i can find it here they give me a little uh little press thing with with their sort of talking points um they call it the world's first and only all-wheel drive american muscle coupe which is kind of a mouthful um but yeah it's a big coupe that can fit five full-grown people um you know, it does have a big back seat. It's not like a Mustang in, or a Camaro in that respect. You can you can get real real persons um, back there. Uh, and it, okay, let let me ask you a question though before you go on yeah. here. You said muscle coupe. Yeah. Um, which engine is in this? Oh, the Pentastar. It's V six only. <laughs> okay. I'm okay. So so I mean, do you? Th I mean, the the Pentastar is a great engine, but. Do you think that that qualifies it as a muscle coupe? Well, I mean, it looks muscular. <laughs> <laughs> I do, so again, though, this comes back to what we were just talking about with the electric cars, like six seconds to 60, like kind of thing, right? Like there's 305 horsepower here. You do have to wind the P out of it to get it. But there's also, you know, almost 270 pound feet of torque. That's that's not too bad. It's no slouch. It's it's fine. Um Hey, you know, when when I graduated from college all those years ago and I bought my first Mustang, you know, a five liter, five liter LX, you know, it only had 220 horsepower. Yes. But and that was a V8. The five liter LX had 300 pound feet of torque at like three, three thousand RPM. <laughs> That's true. So and it also weighed probably a thousand pounds less than this Challenger. Oh, yeah. The Fox body was light. You kick it hard and yeah. sail across the parking lot. Um. Yes. So put it in that terms. Yeah. All right. It's a, it's got about as much torque as a five liter Fox body with about another thousand pounds on it. <laughs> um, so it's, you know, it's, it doesn't jump off the line, but it, it does not. You know, it's, either. it's, it's, it's no Hellcat, but on the other hand, you know, it's, it's just like the bolt, you know, it's got it's, plenty of grunt to, to have fun with, especially Especially if you live in the, you know, northern climes, you know, where the weather is not always as as sunny as it is in, you know, in Malibu, uh, you know, ha you know, having having that much power and all wheel drive could actually be a really good combination. Yeah, it's it's fine. Um, it's like I say, yes, I, I get your point. It's it's not not necessarily muscular in the engine department. It does. OK. Uh, and that's. 
my assumption is that they're being smart and they're saying like, all right, well, if we're going to build this thing, we got to sell it. What sells the most? The V6. Okay, so the V6 all-wheel drive is, is probably uh, the most intelligent play there. I think if demand warrants, it's not a big deal for them to make a V8 all-wheel drive Challenger. I just don't think that there's going to be demand for it. And, you know, somebody asked, like, why no Hellcat? And it's like, you know, the answer is, well, we're not going to comment on future product. I'm like, that's <laughs> good luck making an all-wheel drive system that can stand up to 707 horsepower. Like, that's... You can do it, but why, <laughs> first of all? <laughs> and do you know how much that's going to cost? <laughs> you might as well just, just you know. Well, I mean, a Hellcat's not cheap no, either, so. I mean, it, it's. What's a few thousand more? Sure. Um, you know, it's, uh, and it comes sort of uniquely. Hey, you equipped. know, as, lo- as long as you can undercut a Nissan GTR. Yeah, I don't, I don't think you could with a Hellcat with, with all-wheel drive to stand up to it. Like, you're, you're going to be in GTR territory. Uh, you know, GTRs, you know, base price of a GTR is over a hundred grand now. So, you know, Hellcat's what low seventies, you know, if you could sell an all wheel drive Hellcat for 85, you think you could do a much more beefy all wheel drive system for just another 10 or 15 grand. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Even at low, low, low volume. Probably. Well, we'll have to get them on the phone. um i i was actually so how hard could it be (laughs) i i say do it give us maybe we can get a dollar car and a you know hellcat v8 from them and we can put it together see how long the v6 drive because i wonder too like does the pentastar and the hemi share the same bell housing pattern i wonder they would be smart um because they're you know yeah i'm pretty pretty sure they do i mean uh the 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 uh, oh uh, hmm, maybe not yeah that's they they probably don't actually hmm. wow well we'll we'll figure this out but you know with, with <laughs> you know with with enough desire it's anything right, is we'll possible just, we'll make an adapter plate it'll be fine you know it's, yeah. it's fine and we'll, you know of course we'll use it like a Tremec sixty uh, sixty or something too because they're automatics for the birds um I feel like our project just got a lot more nichey and. Very expensive. Uh, they do equip it well too, though. Like the, you know, the the challenge is one of the nice things about it is like it does feel close in the interior, you know. But the interior is pretty nice, um, especially for you know twenty seven to thirty three thousand dollars sort of entry price. Um, you know, it starts at twenty seven. I think the Challenger itself starts at twenty seven. So the Challenger all wheel drive is a little bit. I forget actually. Um, so anyway, it starts around 30 <laughs> how's that that's better uh you know it's that's actually a, r- a real bargain yeah you know for for what you're getting yeah it's and it, you know it's it's a solid comfortable car it, it looks good all challengers look pretty good even the base models um and it, they give you 19 inch wheels um they give you the park sense uh and the rear view camera and fog lamps and a little deck lid spoiler and these cars also had the gt interior package which uh i guess what they did was they grabbed the um the sport seats and put them in the the v6 car or they grabbed the srt seats and they put them in the v6 car for the first time i guess it's the only place you can get these seats in the v6 or what i mean uh they're very very comfortable like i again i drove from ossipee new hampshire back to 
uh, Portland, Maine, which is it's a bit of a drive through the hinterlands um, where the vacationers don't ever go. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it was it was not fatiguing at all. The bolstering's nice. There's it's leather and Alcantara on on those seats. Um, and they had the, you know, the Alpine audio system and the performance steering wheel. Uh, what I noticed the most was as we were hooning these cars around, uh, they still have that that weird T handle shifter. And so uh-huh. like we would spin out every now and then. And so you'd go to throw it in reverse and you wind up in park and you'd be like, what the hell? So uh, their shifter sucks. Uh, but if you cannot get in trouble with it, it's it's fine. And it's actually it's a big car. It's a heavy car. The, the all wheel drive works really, really well. And I can say that from the standpoint of having shut off all of the skid control and, and you know, basically drifted it around a, uh, a, a circle and then a handling course and the cart track as well. Um, you know, if you get it a little bit mired in, in deep slushy snow, and this is not with winter tires, this is with um, Primacy MX fours or something. So really like economy crap tires. Um, you know, one of the tricks to it was you just, you know, it gets it almost feels like it's stuck or it's, it starts to slide. You just aim and put your foot down and it'll engage the front axle and just sort of pull itself out of stuff. It was very impressive. Um, and you know, and I know it's the same as the all wheel drive charger in in that sense is, you know, that the all wheel drive system is, is effective and, uh, it's, it's not a high horsepower car though. So I'm, I'm not sure how much better it is than the, the rear wheel drive challenger with snow tires say, in these conditions, which probably would also be pretty good because it's a pretty stable, steady handling car. Uh, you put the right tires on it and it's it's fine. But that little edge of, of the front axle being able to be engaged uh, gets you out of trouble where you'd otherwise get stuck. Um, still, still understands and, if you're not careful. And actually, you know, one of the one of the nice things about the all wheel drive system that Chrysler uses on the LX platform is that, you know, when you're driving on the highway um, on dry roads, uh, or just you know driving around on dry roads, um, it actually completely disengages the drive to the front axle, so you're not you're not getting a lot of extra drag, so it significantly reduces the drag, so gets you a little bit better fuel economy as well. Yeah, they call that when they gave us the presentation, it has an active T case, and I was like, uh, okay, transfer case, yep, got it, okay, um, but yes, it does. It has a little display in the gauge panel that that shows you you know which aid with whether the front axle is engaged or not um and so yeah it it defaults to rear wheel drive so that's that's very pleasing for for people who who like to drive and you know all the other stuff that has always been pretty good about the challenger um including the interior that they updated you know it's 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 still a a solid product and i almost feel like it's with you know the the consolidation of some of the other coupes that were around when this was introduced you know you can't get the infinity coupe not that they're really in the same category but uh it's kind of a uh, in a class of its own to a certain degree um you know there's there's no all-wheel drive mustang that'd be interesting no um but uh you will soon be able to get a hybrid one so yeah which is also interesting but so the yeah again so it starts at 33 destination charge so um, you want to add the other interior package to another thousand dollars. Uh, you know, this is, again, this is like looking around going, well, we've got the journey, the Durango, <laughs> the charger and the challenger. And I think that's it. Uh, yeah. For the current Dodge lineup. Um, and you know, the journey's probably going to get replaced within the next 
Well, hopefully within the next year oh, that's or so. Because right, there's a new compass. Well, there's the compass. I mean, the compass is smaller. Well, the, yes, um, but the compass and the so the journey and the compass, the original compass and Patriot were all the same platform. Uh, the the journey was a stretched okay. version of it. It's the Project Global. It's the caliber. Yeah. I forget. What uh, okay. Yeah, you're right. That it was that platform. Uh, PMMK. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's not clear exactly what uh, Chrysler's plan is right now. You know, back when they did their last five-year plan, product plan, um, you know, they talked about a new Dodge crossover, um, which it would probably be based on the Pacifica platform. Uh, you know, so it would probably be a, a shorter version of the Pacifica platform. But, you know, if they do that, that would be, you know, that would actually be a really good combination mm. to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you have something a little bigger than um, bigger than a Cherokee, uh, but smaller than a Durango. Well, and more efficient than the Durango too. I like the Durango, yeah. but it's man, <laughs> that is one thirsty beast. Um, yeah, I, you know, it's it's a it's a good car. I mean, I'm just impressed that you know Chrysler has consistently worked really hard to make the most of what they got. And I can't really say anything bad about the the challenger. Like if you're not, if you're not into the challenger, that's fair. Um, and I do wonder what the story is with this, the Giorgio based replacement that's supposed to come. Is it going to be called the Barracuda? Is it going to be smaller? Is it going to be a rear wheel drive? I and mean, you know, I, I have, I have questions, but, and it sounds like those are either going to be here for like 2019 or 2021. So I, I don't know. Chrysler is kind of a, a moving target here and i'm i'm really not sure sort of what they're doing with dodge at this point you know splitting the trucks off is like okay so you gave ram its own profit and loss statement because they're a new brand now and they're that's good for ram but it's not good for dodge what was that move about um and yeah i mean they took away they took away some profitable things from dodge and just moved them off so uh I mean, these cars are old and amortized and profitable still if they keep selling. So, yeah. And, you know, they, they keep, you know, adding new tweaks to them. You know, at the, the New York Auto Show in, uh, in April, uh, we're going to get the, uh, the Demon, which sounds like it's basically a, a drag race, uh, essentially a street legal drag racer version of the Challenger. Yeah. It's just sort of like the drag pack um, Mustangs. So... Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's creativity on display for them to, you know, get some life out of a product that I'm sure they all expected was not going to be hanging around this long. So they're they're doing the best uh, with what they got. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure what more there is to say about it. So I think I'll just stop saying stuff at this point. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. You want to hit some questions? Yes, because it's getting late. Um and I want to get back to see who else got fired in the federal government. Uh, <laughs> um, so uh, let's see. We had a question about the Hyperloop. Um, not that we know much about it, but we can riff on that. Uh, let's see what the, it came in via Twitter. And it was, uh, let's see, normally not a Hyperloop fanboy, but could we touch on the SpaceX Hyperloop competition this past weekend? Right. So the competition uh, that they had over the weekend was basically for um, groups and companies that were designing uh, the pods uh, that will travel inside of these tubes. And um, 
let's see, uh, I guess out of the, uh, out of the various competitors, they are, tw- yeah, start, they started with 27 teams uh, going into the weekend and they picked three finalists that are going to continue on to actually get to test uh, full scale versions of their pod uh, in the uh, test tube that uh, uh, somebody <laughs> in, the <test> tube. <laughs> <laughs> in the testing tube um, that has been built in, uh, in California. Uh, yeah. And you know, it's, it's far from clear, you know, that, this will ever actually be something really viable. <laughs> um, yeah. There, there's so many unanswered questions around the whole concept. So, you know, I think until we actually see something real um, running, you know, at full scale, we can't be sure that this is ever going to be something useful. You know, I mean, there's all kinds of questions, you know, around the, the rate of acceleration and um, you know, when I, last year at the SAE World Congress, when I talked to uh, Brogan Bam Brogan, uh, one of the <laughs> the founders who's now been ousted from uh, Hyperloop Technologies, you know, he, he talked about you know how do you get the pods in and out. You know, I mean, is this just a single point to point thing? And he described it as having stations um, along the way, along the uh, the length of the tube. Yeah, you know, so kind of described it kind of like uh, packet switching on the internet, you know, where individual pods could get could enter the tube and and get off at various exits essentially. Um, but you know, for these things that are going, you know, speeds of upwards of seven hundred miles an hour, uh, it's not exactly how this is going to work is is still far from clear. Yeah, well, and the the. Um Judging criteria, I guess, for this round is uh, maximum speed with successful deceleration, I guess. If I'm reading this correctly, this is uh, Hyperloop Pod Competition 2, Rules and Requirements. Um, so, uh, yeah, I I just, like, the whole technology to me is, it's a pressurized tube or is it a vacuum? They run, do they, they run in vacuum. Right? It's a, Yeah, it's in a vacuum. Yeah, good luck with that. um to just achieve and maintain a vacuum of of that much volume yeah over over a tube that's running for hundreds of miles and like how much energy is that going to consume like and yeah i I don't know it's it's very interesting to me um and I, i think you know what this is is it's kind of brilliant for for spacex to be almost uh outsourcing r and d at this point, you know, and uh, the schools that compete in it get something out of it, too. First, you know, for sure. Yeah, certainly, you know, for, you know, for students, you know, um, these kinds of um, engineering challenges, uh, you know, these engineering competitions are a great way to, you know, exercise all of the skills that you're going to need uh, in engineering. You know, once you once you graduate, uh, you know, to, you know, everything from project management to design to actually executing this stuff. So, you know, I, you know, I've, I've, you know, when I was in college, I competed in the formula SAE stuff in the formula SAE program, you know, SAE runs a, a bunch of different, uh, pro, um, competitions, student design competitions, you know, so anything like this, you know, is a, is a great opportunity for anyone studying, uh, actually any number of disciplines from engineering to, um, business and, um, 
you know, accounting because you need all these different skills to to do to execute any kind of major project, you know, all working together. So it's it's definitely you know even if even if the hyperloop never amounts to anything real, um, you know, just trying it, trying to do something is worthwhile. Yeah, and so the outcome of it was um, three teams made it through all the criteria because uh, they sort of did a sanity check on the designs as as well as uh you know a bunch of other criteria to actually allow them to run it's a one mile test track uh team from mit one from delft university and one from um uh i i want to say war w-a-r-r which is yeah i'm looking at the ars technical article right now Technically and that last one got up to uh, 58 miles an hour. Right. So it's, uh, they're saying 90 kilometers per hour. So, um, yeah, the, you know, the top speed that they want to get them to is like you were saying, 700 miles an hour or, you know, a little bit lower, you know, 300 kilometers an hour is apparently the, the tech, the speed that they're trying to shoot for, but can't do that over. Well, I think the, the 300 is, is, is for, for the, the next, fa- next phase of development. Yeah. Okay. Ultimately, I think they want to get over 700. That'd be interesting. I mean, flying is about 700 miles an hour. It's a little slower. It's like about six. Um, yeah. Because uh, 700 miles an hour, that's uh, above the speed of sound. So, yeah. Yeah. That's right around the speed of sound. Uh, yeah. Well, I guess but, so in the vacuum. You know, on the other is, hand, when you're, that... when you're running in a vacuum tube. Right. You know, then seven, you know, then the speed of sound is going to be uh, quite a bit higher. Right. And sonic booms aren't as much of a problem inside of that tube. What is the, oh, I guess hopefully. it depends on how deep of a vacuum you pull. Because I was going to say, what is the speed of sound in a vacuum? Um, versus- yeah, it depends on the pressure. Yeah. Uh, well, we're getting very geeky. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's... But that's what we do. Yeah, it's interesting technology. I mean, Elon wants to build tunnels. And I'm like, well, didn't you already talk about that with the Hyperloop? Because apparently he got stuck in traffic. And he's like, no, no, I'm serious. We're making a tunnel company. We don't know what we're doing, but we're going to make a tunnel company. Uh, so, yeah, I, you know, I don't think it's going to replace automotive transportation anytime soon. So there's no. there's that. Um, and uh, all right. I, I don't have anything more to say on that to you. Uh, no. <laughs> OK, uh, the other question we had and I we, we kind of try to keep politics off the show a little bit just because it's. It's kind of a minefield and I could go on for quite a while. Uh, but uh, we had a question about Uber versus Lyft with regards to um, the demonstrations that just happened over the uh, the immigration ban um, uh, this Saturday. Uh, you know, Uber at first uh, was like, well, no cabs running because the, the cab drivers in New York held a temporary strike. Um, so Uber was like, well, no cabs running, take an Uber, <laughs> which was kind of despicable, quite honestly. Um, yeah, well, Travis Kalanick, the CEO right. of Uber is just a generally despicable human being anyway. Right. So. And I, like, and I, we were talking about this at work too. It's like, I, I expected no less from Uber because a, they're terrible, terrible people. And they've proven over and over again that they're terrible people. And, you know, if they had any sense and any compassion, they're, um, their smartest move, which which Lyft actually sort of swooped in and, and, you know, did some of this 
right in that sense um they're smartest moving them and say hey we're uber we have a hugely overinflated market capitalization so we can probably afford to make all these rides free continue to pay our drivers for them make an announcement about it and you know bask in the great pr instead they bungled it and then you know travis kalanick had to come out and you know release this long statement that says like yes you know fraternity solidarity and all this stuff and it just rings hollow um and you know i get the the question with lyft because they they uh donated a million dollars to the aclu uh but backers from lyft have included uh peter Thiel and and carl icon and, and others if you look at lyft's uh wikipedia page because uh, that's where real research happens um there's a lot of underwriters for lyft you know gm invested a bunch of money like 500 million um lots, lots and of one of the one of their original investors was a company called was fontanellis partners which is the uh, venture capital firm uh started by bill ford the executive chairman of ford motor company uh so he he doesn't actively manage any of the investments but uh he puts a lot of his own money into that fund and uh you know they Fontanellis has invested in a lot of companies in the mobility space. So Lyft was one of the companies that they've invested in. Yeah, it seems to me that um, Lyft's uh, management is separate from some of its underwriting and in, in some of that in those ways. And and that's that's usually the case, you know, for most of these startup companies, you know, just, you know, on, you know, on the flip side, you know, one of the major investors in Uber or a couple of the major investors in Uber are um Google Ventures. Well, Jason Kelly and Toy- and, to- in for Uber and too, right? Yeah. And Toyota. Yeah. Well, um Personally, so. <laughs> uh, I think Uber is terrible people and I have refused to use their service and I will continue to refuse to use their service because he's, you know, from the top down, you know, fish rots from the head down. Right. And that's, that's just not good. Um, so I won't do it. And I didn't expect them to be classy. And they certainly uh, certainly fulfilled my expectations. <laughs> yeah. It's a good thing they don't sponsor the show. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. So. All right. Well. Yeah, we're we're uh, this is gonna be like a two hour podcast once I cut that <laughs> that uh, interview into it. So we should probably call it a night. Um, yeah, absolutely. Maybe we'll come back uh, later in this week and do another because it's a Monday right now, uh, and I know we had a little bit of period of time in between. Um, so yeah. Anyway, uh, please give us some feedback on Facebook, uh, some reviews on iTunes. You can catch me on Twitter at Boston underscore auto. Sam is at uh, Sam Abula Sam. I screwed up all the time. Abula Sam, <laughs> Sam is what you said, right? Sam, Sam Abula. I can't do it. I'm on the spot. Sam, Sam Abula Sam on uh, Twitter. Uh, just, you know, spell something close to that in, in Google and you'll usually find my name. Yeah. Abula Sam. There we go. Yeah. See? That's okay. Uh, You've known me for no, 10 years I know, years but I've never been able to pronounce name. your name because, well, so first of all, what I want to do is make it, you know, Samid because uh, it's, that's how it well, looks. Well, technically, that is the, the correct yeah. pronunciation. I'm just, yeah. I'm just showing my ugly American side, apparently, uh, where I can't do anything but mangle names. Uh, anyway, uh, we will catch everybody next week, and uh, thanks for listening. All right. See ya. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. 
Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.